Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for Volume 2, Issue 2. I'm Evelyn Jabry, Executive Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by Managing Editor Sarah Teagan. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, everyone. Before we talk to our authors, we have a few bits of news to share with our listeners. We are pleased to announce that ACS Chemical Biology has won the Association of American Publishers PSP Innovation in Journal Publishing Award. We were recognized for both our innovative magazine style as well as our unique website. In addition, we were the runner-up for the R.R. Hawkins Award for Outstanding Professional, Reference, or Scholarly Work of 2006. This is the first time a journal has been considered for this prestigious award, and we are thrilled that the publishing community has recognized our valuable contributions to scholarly works. You can read more about the AAP and these awards at www.publishers.org. If you'd like to meet the editors and staff of ACSCB, join us at the upcoming ACS National Meeting in Chicago in late March. The Division of Physical Chemistry is pleased to provide a symposium on the biophysics of RNA. This symposium is organized by Jody Puglisi and Jamie Williamson and highlights RNA structure and dynamics, RNA protein interactions, RNA folding, and catalytic RNA. Please join us in Chicago for the symposium and other exciting sessions. For those of you who have read Volume 2, Issue 1 of ACS Chemical Biology, which is open to all readers, you know that the special issue features a number of commentaries and reviews on tools and techniques for all chemical biologists. A review from David Spring and colleagues discusses two strategies for identifying bioactive molecules. Three commentaries address the mechanics of performing a chemical screen in the laboratory and describe how two chemical screening centers operate and serve their communities. In a related review, Anna Mapp and Asim Ansari discuss how small molecules can be used to mimic the proteins that regulate the complex process of transcription. Other reviews highlight recent chemical strategies to image biological processes, single molecule tools for conducting new types of chemical biological studies, and mass spectrometry. This January issue is freely available to all users, so take a moment to brush up on your techniques and catch up with recent literature. If you'd like to share your opinions and experience with the techniques discussed in these reviews, please visit our wiki pages and expand our understanding of these tools. In this issue, we feature articles from the labs of Bonnie Bassler, Laura Kiesling, Chayton Koshla, and Dewey Pei. We'll be speaking with Dewey Pei, Karina Xavier from the Bassler Lab, and Christian Ridley from the Koshla Lab later in the podcast. But first, we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. For our Ask the Expert feature, Takshi Pa from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has joined us to answer your questions about single-molecule biophysics. I recently spoke with Takshi about one of the questions our readers asked. You use single-molecule techniques to understand how the DNA unwinding enzyme helicase works. Using single-molecule techniques, what have you learned about the helicase's mechanism from your studies? Oh, thank you very much for your question. The helicase is an enzyme that is known to unwind DNA or RNA using the consumption of ATP energy. Recently, you know, non-conventional functions have been discovered uh, from these enzymes. For example, uh, moving on the DNA, picking up proteins uh, from the DNA, or you know, causing branch migration of uh, DNA combination intermediates and so on. And they all share one common function, which is the ability to move on the DNA, the motor function. So my lab has been studying uh, this particular aspect for some time. So we developed a single molecule assay uh, 
this uh, movement uh, directly uh, at the single molecule level. So we are attaching a fluorescent dye molecule to the protein and then another uh, dye molecule to the DNA so that when the protein uh, moves on the DNA in one direction, then the distance between the two different dye molecules can decrease and we can measure this uh, as a function of time in the form of the fluorescent resonance NS transfer where when the, the two dyes approach each other, uh, upon excitation of one dye uh, due to energy transfer, the other dye emits photons. We found that, uh, as expected, the protein was moving in a directional manner, but what was really surprising was the fact that when it encountered a physical blockade, instead of just falling off, the protein actually was shown to move all the way back to where it began and then repeat this gradual uh, movement again, and then followed by another setting back, and so on. So, in in the end, the protein was uh, shown to be able to shuttle back and forth along the same length of DNA, and this uh, activity could not have been seen using any other techniques because these movements could not be synchronized and it averaged over many, many molecules you simply uh, lose uh, signal based on these activities. We have also done uh, additional uh, experiments moving the dyes around between different positions of protein in the DNA to uh, obtain some information about how uh, in the world this protein is able to undergo uh, acrobatic movements to carry out this uh, interesting behavior. And also we have uh, obtained additional data that suggests that perhaps the protein can move uh, back and forth along the same stretch of DNA and use this activity, the shuttling, to prevent the accumulation of unwanted proteins on the piece of DNA, which may uh, lead to uh, uncontrolled recombination and so on, which can lead to uh, cell death and so on. So perhaps this uh, repetitive movement can be used to... How far does the helicase move back when it snaps back on the DNA? Uh, that is a really good question. When we first uh, did this experiment, we, we could see the helicase move back by about 60 nucleotide, 60 bases. So we wondered how far it can go back. So actually we engineered DNA molecule that is 182 nucleotide, and it was actually able to go back uh, over that distance too. So that was quite surprising. We haven't tested anything uh, longer than that yet. What do you know about the types of proteins you might be kicking off the DNA? So uh, I forgot to mention that the movement that we have seen is on not on the double-stranded DNA, but on the single-stranded DNA. Uh, there, are, there are proteins uh, called RACA proteins in E. coli. You know, we also have human homologues for RAC51. And these proteins form a filament on the single-stranded DNA to initiate a process called DNA recombination. So recombination is a process of mixing two different molecules, but of very uh, similar sequence. And it is very important uh, to repair DNA damage during replication and so on. But this uh, process has to be tightly regulated. If recombination occurs in an uncontrolled way, then you know, bad things can happen to you. And for example, this uh, breast cancer gene called BRCA2 has been shown to be involved in recombination when gene goes bad, then uh, it can get worse and can lead to cancer. So the one uh, thought we have is the possibility that the, the repetitive movement of the 
measure something like this in the cell? I realize that you have a lot of technical challenges you would need to overcome, but I think it would be really fascinating to know what the in vivo relevance is. We've been uh, thinking about this for a long time, and we don't want to do in vivo measurement just for the sake of in vivo measurement, but I think the molecule measurement has been showing you know, a lot of uh, surprising behaviors of all these molecules, and one has to wonder whether you know, these molecules actually do these things in the cell. And, and, and you know, the only way to answer this question directly is just to do the same measurements in the cell. But there are many, many technical challenges. So, uh, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll take some time. But with that pie in the sky, if you, you know, push forward, perhaps uh, you know, one can find a, a genetic way of doing this, not just for this, for this protein, but many other uh, systems. So that's certainly a goal in the future. Thanks, Takshi. This is a really interesting system you're studying. I want to thank you for taking the time to answer our readers' questions. Thank you for inviting me. You can read more about Takshi's work in a review he published in the January issue of ACS Chemical Biology. Takshi will be answering your questions until April, so please don't forget to submit them on the ACS Chemical Biology website. You can also hear more about Takshi's work at the Biophysics of RNA session at the ACS National Meeting in March. We continue to define chem-bio-glossary terms on the air. This keyword is MALDI, which was a keyword in a review by Natalie Ahn and colleagues. MALDI, which is short for Matrix-Assisted Laser Desorption Ionization, is a laser ionization method that works efficiently for biomolecular analytes, particularly for more hydrophobic species. Analytes are co-crystallized with a matrix and deposited onto a plate. UV laser activation of the matrix carries some of the analytes, usually ionized with a single charge, into the gas phase for mass spec detection. The February issue of ACS Chemical Biology features four exciting research papers. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet four young scientists, Kobe Carlson, Anne-Sophie Wavrail, Karina Xavier, and Christian Ridley. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. In a paper by Karina Xavier and Bonnie Bassler, the authors study the mechanism by which enteric bacteria sense and react to the presence of competing bacteria. Bacteria use a process called quorum sensing, which is chemical communication within a community of bacteria to assess population density and synchronized behavior. The chemical, autoinducer 2 or AI2, comes in a wide variety of forms particular to a specific type of bacteria. By sequestering and disarming a competing bacteria's AI2, Salmonella enterica turns off the competitor's signal and halts the competitor's communication capability. Karina, can you describe in a little bit more detail Salmonella enterica's mechanism for shutting down a competitor's communication? Okay, uh, Evelyn, so as you said, Salmonella and Nikolai um, are able to to internalize this chemical molecule AI2 that we believe it's used for bacterial interspecies communication. And specifically, we have shown that these enteric bacteria have a, a transport mechanism which is capable of uh, binding the AI2, which is produced by bacteria, but also uh, by many other species of, of bacteria, like the marine bacteria, Vibrio as well as the human pathogen, Fibrocola. 
and then it can inter- internalize this molecule and, and destroy it and therefore removing it from the environment. So when they remove this signal from the environment, the enteric bacteria are going to interfere with the other bacteria that are relying with this current sensing mechanism to control their uh, group behaviors, which are important usually for colonization. So by uh, removing this signal from the environment, E. coli and salmonella are gaining some competitor uh, advantage towards the other bacteria that are in in vicinity. I think this process is also particularly interesting through a chemical point of view. That's why I think it's it's a, a good fit for this particular journal because um, this universal bacterial signal we call AI2, it's actually a family of molecules which derive from a, the same precursor, but when they are in solution, they coexist in equilibrium with different forms. Particularly in this paper and, and in the previous papers, we have shown that different bacteria can distinguish and detect different forms of this molecule. Mm-hmm. In this particular work, we have shown that actually the salmonella receptor is binding the cyclic form of, of this AI2 molecule, but when it's actively transported in the cytoplasmic, it probably then it's released as multiple forms again, mm-hmm. and then we have shown that the kinase is, is phosphorylating the open form of this molecule, so a, a distinct form of, of the molecule that's actually uh, detected from the environment and in, introduced into the cytoplasm. In this particular paper, we also this work also allowed us to characterize the protein the proteins that uh, were involved in actually inducing the the AI2 control system because we shown that AI2 phos the phosphorylated AI2 so the product of the the kinase reaction it's actually the inducer of the AI2 system in, in the enteric bacteria mm-hmm. and we have identified a protein that's uh, uh, capable of cleaving um, the inducer AI2 phosphate and therefore this is the protein that is responsible for terminating the AI2 signal, signaling cycle. And so you mentioned also that this applies to E. coli. Do mm-hmm. you expect that the mechanism will be the same in E. coli and what about other bacteria? We have evidence so far that in E. coli and, and salmonella, this mechanism is behaving uh, pretty much in the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually looking for studying if, if this uh, process is present in other bacteria, it's actually one of the projects that I'm pursuing now in my own laboratory. Mm-hmm. And it was and it's easy by a simple bioinformatics approach to to see if, if this particular system that's present in E. coli and salmonella is present in, in, in many bacteria and, and uh, we've seen that it's present in the very closely related bacteria but it's actually not very spread throughout the bacteria kingdom. Okay. But there's actually it's interesting that it's present in like a handful only in a handful of uh, very interesting organisms that are completely unrelated with the with the enteric bacteria. The ones that I'm studying more closely right now are actually Cinorhizobium melaloti, which is a plant symbiont, mm-hmm. 
the other ones that I'm studying is a few uh, bacillus species because interestingly this transport system that's present in enteric is present in um, bacillus serous and bacillus anthrax mm -hmm. but it's not present in the most common trend that's used in the laboratory which is bacillus subtilis and so here we have two very interesting groups we are, which are completely unrelated to enteric bacteria and have this system. I think they probably got this system by lateral gene transfer, mm -hmm. and, and, and we are very interested in understanding, for example, in the case of Cynorhizobium melaloti, this organism is, is quite well studied in its function um, as a symbiont in plants and, and the role in nitrogen fixation. So we would like to understand what's the benefit for Cynorhizobium melaloti to have acquired this system and in the case of the bacillus we are very interested because if we are able to characterize this system and understand its function it will be the first uh, system that we will be able to characterize in gram-positive bacteria because so far AI2 receptors and the mechanisms for signal transduction with the AI2 molecule have been only described in gram-negative bacteria so um, it would be quite interesting to uh, decipher the molecular players that are involved in gram-positives, which also uh, exist in very different niche niches in, in nature, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that all, that's very interesting that they're spread out, all, that this particular system spread out in all these different bacteria. So can I just ask, why are people so interested in bacterial communication? Ebony... In, uh, in particular, but many, many other groups in all over the world um, have shown that that uh, many different bacteria are using cell-to-cell uh, -cell communication to control group behaviors and very important group behaviors such as virulence, biofilm formation, and, and antibiotic production. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if we uh, can understand the molecular mechanisms involved, and if we then we would be able to control this bacteria communication systems, that would mean that we would be able to control virulence and uh, all these processes, uh, all these bacterial processes, which in some cases are dangerous to our species, but in other cases are actually advantages mm -hmm. to our species. In particular, I'm actually very uh, intrigued and interested in, in the function of this uh, communication process in the bacteria that uh, that uh, colonize uh, the human gut, because mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that we we have this very successful symbiosis with uh, many different species of bacteria, which we are not fully characterized. And if we understand the processes that enable this symbiosis to be so successful, maybe we could be using this symbiosis more into our advantage mm -hmm. and for example maybe it will be important to manipulate the bacterial flora when we are sick for example it's very common to just when we use antibiotics to treat a certain infection mm -hmm. we are also changing our complete uh, bacteria flora and we never know and to what extent we are changing that and I think if we have such a, a symbiosis it's there for a reason, and of course there's a lot of data showing that it's important, understanding more how all these different species uh, coexist among each other and, and how they communicate with the host, 
then maybe we can use that in situations that will increase our quality of life. Well, thank you very much, Karina. That's very interesting, and we'll look forward to hearing more about your work. And good luck with your new lab. Okay, thank you very much. In a paper by Christian Ridley and Chayne Koshla, the authors test the anti-cancer abilities of a series of engineered polyketides. Polyketides are a class of complex small molecules produced by bacteria. Here, the authors use several bioengineered polyketides and synthetically alter them. They then test their semi-synthetic polyketides for anti-cancer activity. Christian, how did you create these polyketides? Simply put, we have showed that we can engineer biosynthetic pathways to produce structurally diverse aromatic compounds, which can be used to prepare useful bioactive molecules. In a more uh, detailed explanation, we have shown in this lab that the biosynthetic pathways for type 2 polyketides are quite useful for generating a wide variety of structurally diverse aromatic compounds. This is due to their biosynthesis, which proceeds through a highly reactive intermediate polyketide chain. By selectively adding or removing downstream tailoring enzymes from various pathways, different cyclization patterns occur in the polyketides, leading to products with various aromatic backbones. We had observed that many of these engineered compounds contain a common functional group, a 4-hydroxy-2-pyrone, and in this study we were able to regio-selectively target that group by condensation with alpha-beta unsaturated aldehydes to generate pyranopyrones, a group of compounds which had previously been shown to have anti-cancer activity. Since our semi-synthetic polyketides had greater structural complexity than had previously been prepared through synthesis, we evaluated them in a panel of three cancer cell lines to compare their activities with the previously reported pyranopyrone lead compound. So you picked a particular class to study further in the manuscript. Can you tell us a little bit more about those polyketides? We observed that the pyranopyrones that we prepared from SEC4, which contains a hemiacetal, had similar cytotoxic activity to the lead compound. Since the condensation reaction that was used to prepare our pyranopyrones and the previously reported lead compound was not stereoselective, we wanted to determine whether or not the presence of racemic mixtures were necessary for the observed biological activity. So we did this by treating SEC4 with an aldehyde known to lead to the formation of only one stereoisomer. This compound also showed similar activity, indicating that a racemic mixture isn't necessary for the anti-cancer activity. Okay. So from your perspective, I know you've only tried this on this one particular class of compounds, but can this mingling of biosynthetic engineering and synthetic chemistry be used to generate other anti-cancer molecules or other molecules in general? We think the potential is quite high. In our study, we evaluate analogs of four engineered polyketides, and there are many more which could be used as synthetic building blocks in a similar fashion to the experiments which we reported in this paper. So do you think it's pretty common nowadays that to mix and match the engineering and the synthetic chemistry? Is that a new hot area in science? It's pretty new. I mean, there are some previous examples where um, bioengineers have been able to knock out certain loading domains and initiation modules and then feed it to the bacteria a uh, starter unit which has a reactive functional group attached. And then they can selectively functionalize that uh, through chemistry. 
to our knowledge, this is the first time anyone has used a common functional group on an engineered polyketide that exists due to how they were engineered. That's very interesting, Christian. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Sure. <laughs> Take care. In a paper by Anne-Sophie Wavriel and Dewey Pei, the authors use a chemical bioinformatics approach to find new binding partners for tensin. This protein contains a phosphorylated tyrosine recognized by proteins containing SH2 domains. Phosphorylation of tensin regulates cell signaling events, and deregulation of this modification is involved in a number of diseases. Dewa, what is tensin, and why did you select it for your screen? Okay, tensin is uh, actually a very large protein that exists in the uh, cytoplasm of uh, mammalian cells. Uh, because it's a pretty large protein, so it actually has quite a few domains. Uh, it has an SH2 domain, which is the uh, main reason we have chosen this protein for study. And it also has a couple other domains. And at one end of this, uh, the tensin protein, it binds to a protein called beta integrin. And that protein is involved in focal adhesion and cell migration. At the other end, tensin binds to uh, actin. Actin uh, inside the cells are polymerized and form the actin filaments. So this protein is involved in the uh, overall structure of cells, and the SH2 domains are usually involved in cell signaling. So we thought this would be interesting protein to look at. You know, actually, for uh, some other reasons we choose this protein, is uh, one, we, as well as others, actually do not know a whole lot about what this protein is doing inside the cells other than the things I just talked about. And so if we find anything about this protein, it's likely to be new. We thought that's a good reason. Uh, a second reason for choosing this is actually uh, we already know uh, that this protein is crucial for the polymerization of actin into actin filaments. So we thought if we find a molecule that eventually used to disrupt the function of tensin, we have a very easy phenotype to look at because, you know, actin filaments, you, uh, you inhibit it, it's gone. So it, it's something that, that's very well exception method to look at uh, whether or, or uh, you have the actin filaments a lot. Can you give, us, give our listeners a brief description of the screen that you performed? Okay, the screen uh, we perform, it works like this. So the SH2 domain, as well as uh, many other protein domains, they bind to a small peptide sequence in their binding partners. Oftentimes, this you know, peptide can be as short as four amino acids. In some other cases, it can be as long as 10 amino acids. So the key is that these domains recognize a small peptide motif. And so we thought to find out what these proteins Find what what proteins they can recognize in a, uh, inside a cell. We can build a chemical library, a library in which we have all kinds of peptide sequences, essentially all po possible sequence combinations, and we use the domain in this case the SH2 domain to screen the library and find basically uh, fish out the peptides that can bind to this particular domain. And what we then do is to sequence the binding peptides, and in this way we can determine exactly what kind of peptide sequences that can bind to this particular protein domain. And the next step we do is we take the, uh, what we call the consensus sequence of this protein domain, and we use that to search the genomic database and see which human protein 
or proteins contain the consensus sequence. Anytime we find a protein that matches the consensus we put in, we flag it, we see this is the potential binding partner. And the, in the final step, what we do is we simply perform the very conventional cell biology and we buy antibodies specific against our protein, meaning the protein containing the SH2 domain, and antibodies against the potential binding partners, and we basically perform so-called pull-down assay or co-immunoprecipitation assays so we can confirm the uh, protein interactions or disprove it. In this screen, you identified PDK1 and DOC2 as binding partners of tensin. What role do these proteins play in the cell? Okay, we uh, the, for the first protein, the PDK1 actually there's quite a bit along about it. PDK1 stands for phosphoinositide dependent kinase. It's actually a serine threonine kinase, and it's known that a PDK1 is involved in many signaling pathways in the many cells. And it's a relatively upstream kinase that is it functions almost directly. As soon as the, for example, growth factor binds to the receptor on the cell surface, it activates, uh, activates the, uh, the receptor itself, and then the receptor will bind to another kinase called the PS3 kinase. And the, the, the effect of PS3 kinase function activates PD1, uh, PDK1 kinase, and then the PDK phosphorylate a set of proteins, oftentimes another uh, family of kinases, and that sends a signal eventually to the nucleus, leads to uh, uh, gene transcription and protein synthesis, et cetera. Now, DOC2, we actually know far less about. This is a relatively new protein. DOC2 stands for downstream of kinase 2. So it functions downstream of a, of a kinase, oftentimes tyrosine kinase. And it is, it is known that DOC2 acts as a negative regulator of cell signaling. That is, after cell signaling is turned on, uh, DOC2 will turn it off. So it appears the way it goes is that when a receptor tyrosine kinase is activated, DOC2 will bind to that kinase. And DOC2 is also called a docking protein. And what it does is it will recruit a series of other proteins to itself. And because itself is associated with the cell surface receptor, so it brings a series of proteins to the cell surface receptor, and some of the proteins it brings along are actually negative regulators. They will turn off the signaling process. So are you looking for other types of interactions with the screen, specifically things that don't necessarily use, for example, an SH2? Absolutely. So uh, first of all, I should mention that in the human genome, we have actually about 120 SH2 domains uh, existing in, in about 100 different, different proteins. So obviously, this methodology will work with any other SH2 domain. And in fact, one of our plans is to look at the binding partners of other SH2 domains. In fact, our dream is to do it all, <laughs> uh, to finish the entire, you know, the, all of the, uh, the set of SH2s in the human genome. Now, this methodology will work with any other protein domain, uh, as long as the protein domain binds to a small peptide motif as a mechanism of action. Fortunately, for the, uh, among the many domains that exist in the human genome whose function is for protein-protein interaction, they tend to bind to a small peptide motif. So this includes, 
for example, uh, the PDZ domain, mm -hmm. uh, the B domain, the WW domain, and the PTB domain, and I can name you know quite a few more. But I think the point is that this methodology is applicable to uh, all these domains as long as they recognize a small peptide sequence uh, in the natural setting. Great. Thank you, Daywa. That's very interesting. Thank you. A paper by Kobe Carlson and Laura Kiesling reports that low-affinity multivalent interactions can be used to target and kill tumor cells. Multivalent binding is known to enhance the affinity and specificity of many biological interactions. This natural phenomena is an important component of cellular recognition processes and can help cells differentiate which interactions are worth engaging in. The authors designed a bifunctional small molecule that targets an integrin overexpressed on the surface of many cancer cells and also displays the carbohydrate galactosyl alpha-1,3-galactose, or alpha-gal epitope. This bifunctional small molecule served as a bait to recruit specific antibodies to cancer cells. Only cancer cell lines expressing high levels of integrin and thus presenting high levels of alpha-gal underwent cell lysis. This improved selectivity of this technique could lead to new treatments for cancer and other diseases. We also wish to congratulate Laura Kiesling on receiving the Francis P. Garvin John M. Olin Medal. Francis P. Garvin John M. Olin Medal recognizes distinguished service to chemistry by women chemists. The award will be presented at the ACS National Meeting in Chicago, and we hope to see you there. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.